Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Theresa May speaking in Parliament, a, a raucous sex yes. session of uh, Parliament. And uh, one of the comments that she made is that what we are proposing is challenging to the European Union and speaking uh, in detail about uh, several of the areas that uh, the United Kingdom is negotiating uh, as, as a Brexit uh, position with the European Union. Here to help us understand what's going on right now is Clive Crook. He is editor for Bloomberg Opinion. You can follow Clive on Twitter at Clive underscore Crook, and he comes from our 991 Studios in Washington, uh, D.C. Clive, uh, what do you make of uh, Theresa May's uh, statement uh, regarding the ongoing negotiations over Brexit and whether the United Kingdom will really have the ability to craft its own trade agreements? Well, I think the statement was actually pretty good, um, but it doesn't actually alter the politics of the situation all that much. You know, she was pretty clear about what the deal she wants to put to the EU represents. And I think, as a matter of fact, there's a lot to be said for the approach she's adopting. But the problem is, the political problem is that her own party is split right down the middle on this issue um, that's why you've seen the resignations from the cabinet. Um, and the question is whether she can keep the party together sufficiently well to actually advance uh, this proposal and make it, you know, make progress with Europe in getting to a, um, a good deal, an acceptable deal. Yeah. At the moment, you know, the, basically the government is is hanging on by its fingernails. And I don't think the statement she just made actually is going to make a huge difference to that. Yeah, it seemed... Um Quite quite boisterous, raucous was the word that Pim used. I was looking at the uh, predicted prediction markets and noticing that the chances that Theresa May will be the prime minister of the UK at year end went down uh, quite significantly in the wake of Boris Johnson's resignation. Can you walk us through what would happen to remove Theresa May and whether you, you think that that's a likely possibility? Well, I think it is more likely than before because you have now a plausible, a somewhat plausible uh, rival for May uh, in the running. I mean, that's the, point, that's the point about Boris Johnson's resignation, that you can imagine Johnson running against May in a leadership contest. What has to happen is that a sufficient number of Labour MPs, 48 to be precise, need to sign letters uh, you know, saying they have no confidence in Theresa May's leadership. And then there will be a vote in the Conservative Party among the Conservative MPs to dislodge her. And 159 out of 316 of those MPs would need to vote against her. And then there would be a competition to replace her. Now, I think there are enough votes for uh, the beginning of that process. In other words, I think there are 48 votes to say, you know, we have no confidence in Theresa May and we want a leadership election. But I don't think there are 159 votes to replace her. So I think the likely scenario is if the rebels... If the Brexit people, the hard Brexit people, decide to try and bring May down, I think the chances are that they will fail. Clive Crook, then why do you believe that Boris Johnson, a former foreign secretary, and David Davis, the Brexit uh, secretary, why would they have resigned 
if they didn't line up support for their position beforehand? Doesn't this then strengthen the prime minister's hand? Well, as I say, you know, it, what's happened increases the danger for me. There's no question. But I, I think in the end, she can prevail. I don't think there will be sufficient support in the Tory party to replace her, partly because, you know, Tory MPs understand that if that happens, you know, they're moving along a path that leads to another general election. That's a general election that they could very well lose. Right. So I don't think they're going to want to do that. But, I mean, the, it is a, you know, a moment of maximum political uncertainty. There's no question about that. Now, coming back to what David Davis was calculating, what Boris Johnson was calculating, I think you have to understand that these are two, these are two somewhat different cases. I mean, Davis was in a position where he was having to be uh, you know, the principal negotiator with the EU as this deal moves forward. And he was in a position of having to defend a policy which he thinks doesn't make sense. And on top of that, I mean, I think May has sort of gone out of her way to disempower him in that job. And towards the end, I mean, this checkers meeting, there was this ridiculous business of, you know, a briefing to the cabinet ministers attending yeah. that said, you know, if, if any of them reside, they could make their own way back to London. You know, there'd be no ministerial car to take them back. And Steve Baker, who another a junior Brexit minister who resigned, at the weekend basically said he felt like resigning over the sheer childishness of that threat. Yeah. And I must say, when I read that, my first instinct was to think this can't be right. You know, they surely can't, they can't have done that briefing. It's, it did seem childish, completely idiotic. Uh, but apparently it happened. And I think, you know, this is one of a series of uh, moves that make made Davies feel, you know, what am I even doing in this job? I don't believe in the policy. I'm not being listened to. Uh, you know, May has taken close control of the Brexit reins. I don't really have a job. So, I mean, yeah. I think in his case, there's no mystery at all about why he resigned. All right. So what's the road ahead here, given how split uh, the UK government is and given the fact that Theresa May said that the uh, proposal that the European Union put out there uh, leaves a serious risk, it could lead to no deal? Well... We are at a moment of great uncertainty. There's no, you know, there's no, uh, no denying that. But my, my guess is that May will prevail because there won't be sufficient support in the Tory party to bring her down. And I think you will move to a position where she has a cabinet which is more squarely behind the policy. And then the, then the question shifts to, okay, what is the EU going to make of this proposal that she's made? I mean, it's very important to remember that this proposal that she's made is unpopular with Brexit MPs because it's too friendly to Europe. Europe is going to take the view that this is no good for them because it isn't close enough to the model they would prefer, right, which is the Norway single market membership model. So I think that is, the, that is a bigger danger for May right now, myself, rather than a rebellion within the Tory party that when the EU gets around to responding to this new position she's taken, they will say, sorry, we're not interested. And then I think May would be in more serious trouble. If the EU says, okay, we can talk about this, we can do business along these lines, then maybe Britain can move towards a soft Brexit yeah. of the kind that May is suggesting. But, but the action pretty soon will shift to Europe and Europe's reaction yeah. to May's proposal.
Clive Crook, thank you so much for being with us. Clive Crook is Bloomberg Opinion Editor coming to us to talk about the ongoing turmoil in uh, British politics as well as the Brexit path ahead. Ian Bremmer, uh, a longtime strategist who runs the Eurasia Group, uh, just tweeted out, shambolic is too understated to describe present British political process. Certainly that uh, talk that Theresa May gave uh, to the legislature was raucous and uh, fraught with a lot of uh, jibing and mocking and all sorts of things. As the rhetoric heats up between the U.S. and China and other nations over trade, there is a question of what are the potential consequences and are markets overly sanguine or overly uh, perhaps heated up or uh, <laughs> overly dramatizing what's going on? Here to answer that is Robert Lawrence. He's professor of international trade and investment at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He's also a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and former economic advisor to President Clinton. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for being with us. I just want to start with a line in a recent article that you wrote. It may be impossible to prevent the deglobalization of the U.S. economy. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, the way we make things today is in global supply chains. And so products are no longer singly made in one country and then sold in a second. Uh, but rather, um, many components are shipped in and then they're assembled. And so when you put tariffs like we're now seeing imposed, you disturb these global supply chains. And that's what's happening. And that's what I meant by saying in the long run, uh, firms are going to be unable to plan and to invest uh, in order to service the global economy. So isn't this what President Trump wants, which is to bring more jobs back to the U.S. and not outsource them to a lot of other countries? Well, in one sense, it is what he wants. But the problem is that uh, what's going to happen as he imposes these tariffs is that a lot of American jobs are also going to be lost. Uh, we saw last, last week, for instance, how Harley-Davidson has decided that uh, they, because of the retaliation that President Trump has invoked, they're going to have to move now to Europe to produce their uh, motorbikes. Uh, I would just, uh, Robert Lawrence, I'd just like to get your thoughts on the, the movement of people, uh, basically because they're seeking some kind of uh, economic solace from poverty and uh, being disenfranchised, particularly in Latin America. And I'm wondering whether that is a factor when it comes to trade. In other words, would better trade policies lead to healthier economies outside the United States, thereby mitigating what the president has already described as a flood of economic immigrants into the United States? I think absolutely. You know, um, when President Salinas of Mexico was talking about the original NAFTA, he said, America, your choice is simple. You can take our goods or you can take our people. And in fact, I think by um, causing, uh, by disrupting uh, the supply chains uh, like those that we have currently with Mexico, 
we're going to lead to economic instability in Mexico. And that could put even more pressures on our borders. Professor, I want to I want to talk specifically about the relationship between the U.S. and China. I know you've done a lot of research on the history there, and I'm just wondering. You know, there is an argument that China's practices have been uh, anti-competitive against the U.S., have disadvantaged the U.S., uh, and that uh, Pre- President Trump is right to go after uh, certain of these practices. Would you agree with that? Well, I would agree that there are numerous practices of the Chinese that we need to go after, but I would disagree very strongly that the right way to do it is by breaking our international trade commitments and imposing tariffs on them. I think we should be using the legal processes of something like the World Trade Organization to deal with some of the practices, and in other cases, we have power because we should be preventing the Chinese from investing in our country if we can't invest in theirs. So my problem is that I think there are genuine issues with China, but we need to deal with them in a way that doesn't damage our own economy. I think a lot of people would agree with that. And I think that the disagreement comes with exactly how to how to do that. And I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, President Trump has gone after certain things. We don't know what he's going to do eventually. How does China's transformation uh, from a a relatively poor country to the world's second biggest economy affect these discussions? Well, definitely. um, I think, firstly, (laughs) we can't push them around in the way that uh, perhaps President Trump thinks he can. And I think we're only going to get somewhere if we collaborate with them and if we use the rules. And if we use our allies in bringing cases uh, to the World Trade Organization. So I think uh, there are better methods to, uh, to deal with China. Trying to bully them, essentially by imposing the tariffs on them and uh, trying uh, to get them to back down, which after all will cause their president to lose face, I, I just think is a non-starter. So what President Trump is doing is in fact um, inducing a trade war which is going to penalize companies who've invested in China. Are U.S. companies going to miss out on faster-growing economies that are going to go their own way and strike trade deals without the United States? Well, absolutely. We've just seen, we know what happened. Uh, The U.S. didn't join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The 11 countries, other countries went ahead and they've removed the barriers among them. So now American exporters are going to be charged higher tariffs when they sell in Japan than their competitors are going to be. So we're by not playing uh, with other countries, by trying to withdraw, in fact, we're going, to, we're going to damage the global economy and our own relationship with it. So, uh, Professor, right now, uh, U.S. markets are largely shrugging off the risk of an escalation in this trade war, at least one that would uh, really reduce economic growth globally. You've got the U.S. equity markets generally are up today yet again. Um, Do you think that perhaps people are too sanguine or do you think that this is not something that will ultimately be felt in markets in the near future? Well, I think in the short run, our economy has a lot of strength. I think the tax cuts have generated uh, very strong demand. And I think actually last week's news allows the Federal Reserve uh, to to lower interest rates. 
But I think it is rather damaging for the firms who, who are involved in international trade. And I think we're going to see the real economic effects over a much longer period of time. So you can say they're too sanguine if uh, what they're reflecting is the long run. Uh, but in the short run, I think uh, the timing is pretty good in the sense that our economy is very robust. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Robert Lawrence is Professor of International Trade and Investment at the JFK School of Government at Harvard University. He is also a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, former economic advisor to President Bill Clinton, uh, joining us from Boston. Pim, you know, I have been really impressed at how much drama and intrigue there has been in the soybean market over the past few months as uh, the talk of tariffs heats up. And this is sort of uh, exemplified by a ship that was carrying U.S. soybeans racing to China to try to get there ahead of the U.S. implementing a 25 percent tariff. Here to talk about that and, and what we should really be looking for in the agricultural world on the heels of these tariffs. Alan Birger joins us now, agricultural reporter for Bloomberg. Alan, let's just start with that ship. What happened and what's next? The peak Pegasus. It uh, is idling off the coast about 19 miles from Dalian, where it was supposed to be unloaded before the tariffs took effect, but it didn't get there on time. And now it's a shipment looking for a buyer. Now, there was a little bit of a development here where China threw a wrinkle into uh, the terms of sales where basically if U.S. soybeans are being bought for the Chinese state reserve, which can be quite substantial, um, enough to affect world markets, the government will actually reimburse for the cost of the tariff. Um, it's basically a rebate. It isn't paid up front, but you can get reimbursed later. And I think this just shows how complex this trade war could become because there are all sorts of levers that China can pull in in the United States to a certain extent as well, that can take what at the top level looks like this really static situation and throw all sorts of nuance into it. I mean, if there is a rebate for the state reserve, that should be good for U.S. soybean prices, but you actually see soybeans down about 18 cents today. They're still trading at a 10-year low. And so it all comes down to what signals are given to the market and how does the market perceive these signals in a way that it shrugs it off or it see it as an opening. Right now, folks seem pretty bearish that anything will actually be resolved soon. Alan, uh, the price of soybeans is down something like 20% since the beginning of March. What are soybean farmers going to do? Well, at first, they're going to be seeking out other markets. And you have seen some signs of, of other buyers rebounding just because U.S. soybeans are now so cheap, especially in comparison with Brazil, the main competition, which is mainly selling to China. So there's a certain amount of market recalibration going on right now. But if that plays out over months or years, that's cold comfort if you have a bunch of soybeans sitting in your bin and you do need to get some sort of capacity worked off and you are looking to pay off your loan and you do need revenue to pay off that loan, say, 
say in October. Um, as this rolls on, you're going to see more of those effects start to reverberate through farm country. Of course, we saw a headline about 10 days ago where it was reported by the USDA that farmers had surpassed corn in terms of plantings of soybeans over corn for the first time in 35 years. A lot of farmers bet on soybeans this year, knowing that China was looming in the horizon. That was a risk that they took. Right now, it looks like a bad bet. Alan, I'm just wondering, has this sort of decline in soybean prices gone too far at this point? Because you are getting some traders saying, you know, look, we've priced a lot of bad news already into the spot of futures. That that could very well be the case. Um, you know, you take a look at the other factors that are driving the soybean market. Another expectation is that there's just going to be a bumper crop because the weather has been very good in growing regions this year. But we're now hitting a very sensitive time of year for the weather. So if you see some sort of sign of too much heat or some sort of crop damage, um, that is going to push prices up pretty quickly. And then another question indeed is, how much of an effect is this trade war ultimately going to have on U.S. soybean sales for China? The state reserves move already shows maybe a little bit of softening on China's line. Later in the year, if Brazilian soybeans simply can't keep up, you may have certain importers that will pay the tariff price anyway. We're basically about to learn how essential the U.S. is as a supplier for the world agriculturally. It's always been seen as the buyer of last resort. We'll see if that profile survives this trade war. Alan, uh, you mentioned corn and uh, corn prices down about uh, 15% from their uh, peak. Uh, that was uh, in the end of May as well. What's up with corn? Yeah, so it's important to bring up corn because corn has never really been the China product that a lot of traders felt that it could be. So in terms of direct sales of U.S. corn to China, very little, about $140 million uh, in 2017. But what you do have is this echo effect. Um, you know, you have the weather, um, which would be driving down prices anyway, so that's one factor. You also have the fact that if soybeans are sitting in the U.S. unused, they'll be used for something, and that could be as animal feed, which will then have a knock-on effect of reducing demand for corn. Thanks very much. Alan Bjorga, our agriculture reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our studios in Washington. Our next guest, Josh Lohmeyer, is the head of U.S. investment-grade credit at Aviva Investors, helping to manage more than $480 billion based in Chicago. Um, I want to ask you about whether the uh, Federal Reserve will have to end their rate cycle, their rate increase cycle, as well as the, the quantitative tightening program because of what has been happening, not only with uh, trade talks, but also uh, when it looks as though you've seen big sell-offs in emerging market debt as well and a strengthening U.S. dollar. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, with regards to the Fed, I think they've, they're on a path that is really driven by economic growth and stabilization of the jobs in, in the U.S. economy. And, and so I really believe that they're quite comfortable until they start to see stresses in those specific areas that they, they don't really need to remove policy or reduce their pace until they see really specific reasons to do so. You know, I'm struck by the fact that even as the Fed backs away from their ultra low rate policies, they're still very low. Uh, investment grade bonds have done 
really badly. And at the same time, companies have been able to sell unprecedented amounts of the debt for mergers and acquisitions. I'm just wondering, after a loss in the first two quarters of more than 3%, do you think that investment grade credit is a buy now? Or do you think that this is just a sign of what's to come? You know, I think 2018 specifically is the year of the return of more normalized volatility. And so the weakness is really driven by not so much by fundamentals as it is by a a slight weakening in demand and, and the consistency of demand, be that retail, be that foreign investors. And supply has remained incredibly constant. And so when you start to see a tightening of policy like we have had, what that just means is risk assets are now going to be forced to compete a little bit for for demand. Okay, so then where are we in that process? I mean, given the fact that we've had this 3% loss, which is the biggest uh, first quarter loss since 2008 for investment grade bonds in the U.S., are we halfway there? Are we going to see a lot more <laughs> more to come? I think that's a great point. I I think where we're at now is we're at a much more comfortable level than where we were at to start the year. The market has actually, you know, even though we felt the pain, if you think about just the levels on some of the sectors and some of the movement we've had, it's been a, a pretty been a pretty stable environment of a slow and steady widening versus a panic. And so I think this is a more natural sell-off to the market. And and I think where we're at now is I think we're going to see periods where credit does fairly well, but we're going to, but these supply demand imbalances that we're working through now, those aren't going anywhere. And so I think, I think volatility is here to stay. I think it's equally likely that we continue to to leak wider here and, and still see a little bit of underperformance in credit markets, but there will be periods where um, where we'll see a positive, you know, rally in spreads as well. So I, I think we're kind of in a more neutral phase where we're biased to make sure we keep powder dry and make sure that more volatility is definitely on the horizon, but there could be pockets of, of positive returns. So one thing that you were talking about is that what we're seeing is really a result of a normalization of Fed policy, uh, more than some fundamental deterioration. And yet you are seeing a record proportion of triple B issuance. This is the lowest uh, grade in the investment grade spectrum. And people are wondering, you know, given the fact that people are raising money to buy back shares, to acquire companies in and at, at very high valuations, this is a credit story as well. What's your thought on that? And do you think that there's a lot of risk building in that lowest tier of investment grade credit? I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is risk here. I think if you think about the, you know, over the last couple of years, companies have been able to add leverage either just through share buybacks or you know, M&A or whatever their reason is, they've been able to add leverage and they have not been penalized for it by the market. And so you have seen a managed downgrade, a managed increase in leverage for really no penalty with regards to the interest cost to, to the business. And so I do think part of the transition we're seeing now is triple Bs are suffering more than single A's in this more recent bout of volatility. And I do believe that that is setting us up for potentially more volatility if, as we kind of transition through this, you know, uh, supply demand imbalance. Josh, just quickly, 20 seconds or so. um, How do you, how does anybody justify buying a tenure at 2.85%? 
That's a great question, and I think you got to you got to you got to put that in the context of the end investor. So if if he, there's really not a huge reason to own a lot of duration risk here, just from a total return perspective, you are always going to have real money investors like a pension fund or an insurance company that needs to match their liabilities with their assets. And so that that is a very legitimate reason to own duration. But if you are just looking at it from a total return perspective and you look at how flat interest rate curves are today, yeah. there's really not a big reason to own duration here. Josh Lohmeyer, thank you so much for being with us. Josh Lohmeyer is head of U.S. investment grade credit at Aviva Investors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.